Let's have a word of prayer before we do anything else, shall we? <clears throat> oh God, our Father, we're about to open your word and it doesn't get better than that. Here are things that will change our lives. Here are things that will feed us. We remember that you said long ago that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Remember the Lord Jesus, your son, repeating it in the time of his temptation. And we come with it now, God, to you and realize its truth and ask that we'll realize it even more as we open your word together and read it and realize that these are words of life. So please feed us, open our minds, our hearts to receive words of truth from your word. We submit ourselves as teachable to you this morning. And thank you for the greatness of the day. We ask you to add blessing to blessing, please, just now. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. When Celia uh, and I came up here on Wednesday, uh, I was a little bit confused, and it's entirely my fault. It wasn't Dalton or Don's, but uh, I wasn't sure whether we had ministry on Wednesday and today, or Wednesday and Thursday and today. It turned out it was Wednesday, Thursday and today. Um, and I'm only telling you that because I had a little scheme in my mind of uh, what I would bring to you. Some weeks back at the conference, we were in First Kings chapter 8, and uh, there were one or two things left over from that. I was mentioning some couplets of things that you find in Solomon's prayer of First Kings 8. And we got th there are six of them, and we got through three of them at the conference. So I figured that uh, with Wednesday, uh, Thursday, and today, that would be another three, one each. But then um, I somehow forgot about Thursday, and I managed to do two on the Wednesday, which left me with the sixth on the Thursday and today with nothing. <laughs> anyway, I was talking to Dalton, as you do, and uh, Dalton had lots of suggestions <laughs> for, the, for the ministry this morning. And you nearly got me hooked there, Dalton, because he said, uh, you, you mentioned the Ark of the Covenant back at the conference because that figures pretty highly in First Kings 8. Why don't you give us something on the Ark? And I was sorely tempted. I tried... But you know, last night, I, sat, I was so tired last night, I sat down and thought this is far too big a subject <laughs> for me. And uh, we would need a week, two weeks, month or so on together to look at the Ark of the Covenant. Marvelous, marvelous subject. You know, God willing, I would love to come back and uh, oh, yeah. go through things like the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle furniture, so rich in its uh, teaching to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Another time. But down in Trinidad, and we've been down there for a little over a month now, we've been going through a series from Genesis, what we call the call and the character of Abraham. Now, this is not it. This is, you're not getting second-hand slides here. These are specially for you. But uh, I redid some and uh, altered them slightly. But there's one chapter uh, in um, Genesis concerning the covenant that God made with Abraham. I'd like to read that with you now. It's chapter 15. And that'll suffice for our considerations uh, for this morning. So Genesis chapter 15, please. <clears throat> After these things, <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, 
Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle, placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. When you come to uh, chapter 15, it's a chapter that's all about the promises that God made to Abraham. And he's already promised Abraham, and Abraham has already believed it. And it would be easy to read chapter 15 of Genesis as simply sequential. So that God's made a promise to Abraham, Abraham believed it. The promise involved him having a son, and there was no sign of a son. And he's, he's 99 years old, and his wife's 90. This just isn't going to happen in the normal run of things. So Abraham comes to God with the problem. And, and it, please mark the point, he does not come with disbelief. He comes with the problem. We'll come back to that in a minute. But he comes to God with the problem, and God repeats the promise. And then he seals the whole thing with this rather curious ceremony that we've read about here of the covenant of the animals that were divided in two and the, the, the Lord, because it is uh, uh, the Lord that passes between the two parts. And it, by doing that, he seals the promise to Abraham again. Now, it would be easy to read it that way and pass on to chapter 16 and say, well, that's good. 
the Lord's repeated the promise and Abraham's listened to it and he's got this extra sort of assurance through the covenantal ceremony, the rite that went on there, and it would be easy just to leave it like that. That would be to miss the wonder of it. And all I want to do with you this morning is to capture something of the wonder of Genesis 15. When I was running through these chapters down in Trinidad, Genesis 15 just gripped me all over again, and I want to share something of that with you again this morning. So that's the, this is what we're going to do to capture that. It's the covenant God made with Abraham. We'll say something very briefly about the cause of that covenant, the character of it, the certainty of it, and the commitment of it. Don't worry, there, there, there's not... There's a lot that could be said. We're not going to be saying a lot today. So we'll run through these things. But the cause, character, certainty, and commitment of covenant. And we'll see these things as applicable to ourselves. So first of all, the cause of the covenant. Abraham said, Lord God, what? Lord God, how? And I want to point out to you again what we've just mentioned, that when you find Abraham in the 15th chapter of Genesis, he is not an unbelieving man. He's a believer. We must not read verse 6 as if that's something new in chapter 15. He, that is Abraham, believed him, that is the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted unto him, Abraham, for righteousness. That didn't begin in chapter 15. The belief that Abraham expressed in Jehovah began back in Ur of the Chaldeans when he was called. And Stephen tells us, and you have to come all the way through to Acts in the New Testament to find this out. Stephen tells us the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. What, what was that? What was it? We don't know. But there was a tremendous enlightening to that dear man's eyes. He was a pagan idolater. And he was woken up from all that idolatry and pagan uh, way of life to believe in the one true living God. And he left Ur and he came out a believing man, went to Haran. And from Haran he went down to Canaan. And he's a believing man. In chapter 15, he's coming to God not with disbelief, but with doubts. Why are we mentioning the point? It's because God does not make covenants with unbelievers. And I, I don't know, I'm going to make this as general as I can. I think I do know everybody here, perhaps I don't. And uh, just in case, anyways, you know, if there was an unbeliever in this room here today, I'm not saying that with any cruelty or malice, of course not. But God does not make covenants with unbelievers. He's calling you an unbeliever, as you and I, perhaps all of us today, once came to him. And by his enabling grace, giving us the ability to exercise faith, we began to believe in the one true living God. And as soon as we did that, that opened up a door through which tremendous blessings have flooded towards us and keep flooding towards us. James, in his little epistle in the New Testament, past Hebrews, you know where it is. James says, you don't let the man who doubts, now be careful with the word doubts, we all have doubts, and I don't want to bother you with you know, guilt about having doubts. If you have them, I have them, we all have them. But the thing to do, when somebody says, when doubt knocks at the door, send faith to answer it. And that's the thing. Don't let the doubt in. You send faith and send the doubt away again. Dismiss them. That's what belief enables you and I to do. But don't nurse the doubt. And James is speaking about a man who nurses the doubt and who holds on to it. And this is what he says, very straight language. James speaks very directly. And he says... Um, let not that man suppose that he's going to receive anything from the Lord. 
That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That's pretty strange. If you come distrusting the God who holds your breath in his hand, do not be so arrogant as, as, as to suppose that you can expect any and have any right with such a God. So I'm making the point, Abraham comes not with disbelief, but he certainly comes with questions. And if we have a God, you and I, we have a God who invites us to come with our problems. God, you've promised me this. I don't see any sign of it. Do you know how old Sarah is? Do you know how old I am? This isn't just going to happen. A menopausal woman, a, a man who's 99 years old, that, that, the, the, this isn't possible. And he's coming to God. He said, well, there is somebody, and I can see how all this is going to go to him. And God says, no, and he repeats the promise to Abraham. So God enables us. That, and the point about God's reply to Abraham is that it was assurance for belief. It wasn't assurance for unbelief. I know I'm emphasizing the point again, but it was, a, it was an assurance for belief. You and I come to God and don't hesitate to come to God with your problems and say, I don't, I don't see how this can work out. And he'll give you an assurance. It's the way it works. The cause of the covenant. Now, I want to show you this in Hebrews 6. You may not be able to read it from the back, but it, and we're not going to give exposition on this, but I'll, I'll read it through with you anyway. This is Hebrews 6, 13, 18. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, God swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, now notice this, we might have a strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Why did God enter into a covenant with Abraham? It was for Abraham's sake. It wasn't to remind God of something he might have forgotten. It was for the man's sake. And the writer of the Hebrews all the way down the years says, yes, and it was for our sake too, that we might have. And that word consolation, for you, if you're a Bible student, and there are many here today, I know, that's the word parakletos, or one of the parakletos words, that's the comforting word. That you and I may be comforted by this repeated word of God, telling us, you know, I do keep my promises. If I say a thing, it is going to happen. So God enters into this arrangement not because uh, his word before that was a little bit questionable. He's entering into it for our sake, our, the sake of our weakness, the sake of our asking questions and thinking, oh, I don't see how this can happen. You know, we, we haven't got time to do it today, but you go through the promises of the, the word of God, the promises that directly to you and I. Take forgiveness of sins. We were thinking about it in our worship meeting a little while ago. The forgiveness of sins. And you say, can, is it really possible? And you know the devil will come and whisper in your ear, it's not really. You think it is, but it's not. You know, God is so holy. And you keep, keep making mistakes day after day after day. We all do. You think you're forgiven. And you come to God and say, God, I know you've said that I'm forgiven, but I just don't see it. Is it really going to happen? You're not coming in disbelief, but you're coming with the wonder of it all and God will just repeat to you his great promises in Christ we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins and so on and so on and so on you take all those verses out and enjoy them all over again
That's the God who repeats what he's already said. Not because it was weak or faulty before, but because he's willing to remind you and I and lay it down again for our assurance, our comfort, our consolation. The cause of the covenant. Uh, here's a little thing. He says, uh, that is from the Hebrews 6, uh, 6 scripture, because he was determined to show his counsel. And here's a little trick. I, I mean, uh, you can get this out of concordances and word studies yourself. But bolaminus is a Greek word, bull for counsel, bolaminus determining. And it, it's just, to me, it underlines something. And here, here it is in sort of plain English. This is what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. He's saying, you know, God is so interested in underlining this thing that you and I might question or doubt, that is willing to show us his counsel. See, this starts with God. He, he's not phased by you and I coming and saying, oh, we, we have a problem. But he's really willing, like a father to his children. You know, you want to give your children things. He's willing to show you his counsel. And because of the two Greek words that had come from the same word, really, it's his purpose to show us his purpose. It's his will to show us his will. He decrees to make known to us his decrees. Don't you love that? He's made a decree, but he's decreed to make it known to us. See, God doesn't say it, give a thing, and then leave us to struggle and struggle and struggle with it. He draws near and he wants to show us the, the sureness of it, the absolute assurance of it. Uh, oh, I put an exclamation mark at the end of this. You know, I forgot I did that. But uh, when we were at school, my English teacher tells us, you be sparing with the exclamation marks. It's not a good thing, apparently, in English to splatter exclamation marks over everything. You're supposed to save them for space. Well, that's, I think that deserves one. <laughs> now, the character, that's the cause of the covenant, the character of the covenant. A covenant, let's say what it is, it's an agreement, a pledge, a promise, a bond, a guarantee. It's the kind of thing that happens between businessmen. Same thing that happens between partners in marriage. It's a covenant. Convenere, a coming together, two or more parties who come together to make a bilateral contract, agreeing on promises, stipulations, privileges and responsibilities. That's what God did with Abraham, isn't it? No, it's not what he did with Abraham. All those things are true of what God did in Genesis chapter 15, except for that little word, bilateral. The two parties that came together were the, the God of heaven and earth and a man whom he'd called by divine grace and favor. And did you notice we read through chapter 15 in this covenant and not once did God say to Abraham, what do you think about it? What are you going to add into this? So there is a clause here that you want to change a little. You know, in God's covenants, they're never bilateral. I was saying, I think it was on Thursday night, a little group of us here, and I was saying that God's covenants are unilateral. And it makes me feel like I'm saying, that you said that it's God's covenant with Abraham. It, I always feel like saying it's God's covenant to Abraham. It was with him. That's the grace of God. He calls a man in to share in the thing that he's giving him. But we mustn't ever imagine that we have a part in that. And we're thankful for that, aren't we? You see, if I could put my thumbprint on this covenant, the new covenant that God has made for me in the blood of Jesus Christ, I would, I would spoil it. But it's all of him that it might be unspoiled forever and forever. Never with the thumbprint of man on it. Thank God. Uh, here's a little thing from a Bible dictionary uh, which says it really. God's covenants are not bilateral. They're unilateral. 
and just run this through with me. Persons are recipients, not contributors. They're not expected to offer elements to the bond. They're called to accept it as it is offered. They're called to keep it as it is demanded and to receive the results that God by oath assures will not be withheld. That's how God works the covenants. And we're the recipients. of. But as we receive it, we receive the responsibilities of it. There are demands that come with it, as if you followed the story of Abraham through, you would see. But we're just galloping through this this morning. Still on the character, that word immutability is in Hebrews 6. God being willing to show by two immutable things, by two immutable things, it's amethetheton, it just means unchangeable, unalterable. The two immutable things by the word of God's word and the oath. And I want to say this to you again. God had no need whatsoever to add his oath to his word. He only did it for Abraham's sake. And according to Hebrews, he only did it for our sake. He knows our weakness. But the word of God is not made more sure by God repeating it or adding an oath to it. Since he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you. God, what are you doing to Abraham? Oh, I'm comforting him. Are you making your word? No. It couldn't be made more sure. This is the truth, isn't it? Now, um, he, he says to Abraham, remember, Abraham goes into a deep sleep and he says to him, know this for certainty, the descendants of yours, they're going to go into, into a way to a foreign land. And when they're there, they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Now, the, the, the point is that the unchangeability the, the, we're talking about the character of the covenant of God now. It is not vulnerable. That's what I want to leave with you. When God makes covenant, he does not leave you with something that's, that's a little questionable or, or vulnerable and uh, liable to decay or corruption or somebody altering it. They cannot. And Abraham might have been questioning that just a little in his mind. You've promised me this, but I don't see how it's going to happen. And God says, here's two immutable things, my word, my oath. Be assured, Abraham. And he says to him, you may think in terms of time, and we all do, don't we? And Abraham did. I'm 99, Sarah's 90. We're thinking in terms of human experience. God says, you've got to think outside of that. Your descendants, it's not going to just be all plain sailing. Actually, they're going to go away into it. I promised them this land, but they'll be in another land for 400 years. You know what, Abraham, while they're there, they're going to be slaves, and they're going to be badly treated. And all that time, my covenant has not been altered one bit. So even when we go through difficult experiences, the promises that God makes to us are still absolutely certain and sure. Would you pick that up and take it away with you from Genesis 15 this morning? Here's the thing. Time is not an issue in governance, the covenant of God. We have a long haul through life sometimes, and we don't know why things happen to us. And even worse, we don't know why they happen to other people. And we look at some of the sufferings that people go through, and, we, we don't, and you take that to God. Say, God, this, this is, is this part of your covenant? No, he says, but the covenant is not affected by it. And beyond all that suffering is bliss. Beyond the tears, there's the tearless eternity. The covenant's not affected. Psalmist says in Psalm 94, 90, sorry, 
for a thousand years in your sight is like yesterday when it is past, like a watch in the night. Don't judge God's covenant by our sense of time. The other thing is trouble is not an issue, if you can see that on the bottom of the screen. Trouble is not an issue. They're going to be slaves, God says to Abraham. Don't you love the way that God's honesty comes through in these things? He doesn't hide things from us. The Lord Jesus says to us, to you and I as disciples, you can, in the world you can have trouble. You can have tribulation. But don't fear, I've overcome the world. And there's the covenant promise again. It goes through. In the, oh, I've got it up there. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So that's the character of the covenant. It's immutable, it's unalterable, unchangeable because of the one who's made it. And we can trust God for that. Now the certainty of the covenant. And we come back to that scripture in Genesis, uh, Hebrews 6 again. Two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We have the strong consolation. So the certainty of the covenant is that it didn't make God's promise more sure. It was to make Abraham more sure of the promise. Um, probably said enough about that, and I'm looking at the time, so we'll, we'll leave it there. But I just want to impress upon you that the certainty of the covenant is absolutely sure. God does not make promises that are open to somebody altering them. He's made promises to you and I. We should go away from here today resting in those. I've got something that can't be changed. Cannot be changed. What a thing. Now the commitment is the last part of the, uh, the fourth and final little thought. The commitment of covenant. And here we come to something that I, I want to say to you suggestively because I, 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 it's not written... Let me start again. When you go through Genesis 15 and the right of those animals separated, there's no explanation of that. I don't find it before Genesis 15. And I'm struggling to find an explanation of it after Genesis 15. But I'm going to show you one in the moment that at least explains something of it to my mind. I hope it helps you too. But in all the sacrifices God gave in the Levitical system from Moses onwards, we don't find anything quite like that. So what is, what is it? What was this matter of the divided animals? In Jeremiah 34, this is what you've got. In fact, before I show you that, let me just give you very quickly sketch in the background to what I'm going to show you. Many years after Abraham, Jeremiah, time of Jeremiah, Dalton was reading from Jeremiah this morning, a dear man, a great prophet of God, living in very, very difficult times. And at one point in his life, he's looking outside the walls of Jerusalem, Actually, maybe he didn't because they threw him in prison. But people could have looked outside the walls of Jerusalem and saw Nebuchadnezzar's crack forces. I mean, these are his top troops, and they're all around Jerusalem. And humanly speaking, there's only one outcome from that. Nebuchadnezzar's going to take Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judea. There's no way that they can stand against him. That's the human assessment of the thing. So uh, the people inside Jerusalem, some of them have got slaves. And they said to the slaves, look, this, uh, this is going to happen. There's not a lot of point in us, you having masters and us having slaves. When this happens, look, we're going to give you your freedom. And to make sure that they understood that the freedom that they were granting them was properly understood and accounted for, they entered into the same, they entered into a covenant. In their case, a bilateral covenant. They said to the slaves, we'll, we'll give you your freedom. The slaves said, we will accept it. And sacrifices must have been taken and divided and they passed between the two parts. Now, the morning came and they looked over the walls and wonder of wonders, Nebuchadnezzar's armies disappeared. 
they were coming back, by the way, and it was just a postponement, but they'd heard of something happening up on the northern border and he had something else to do, so he sent his army up there to deal with that before he came back to deal with Jerusalem. But this is the point. The people who had freed their slaves in Jerusalem said, aha, things have changed. See, there's no immutability with their covenant. Ah, well, it's kind of different now. And uh, no, we're not granting you freedom. Do you know that was terribly serious in the sight of God? And this is what we got in Jeremiah 34. It's the Lord speaking. I will give the men who transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me. When you make a promise, God hears it. When, look at this, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hands of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Isn't that illuminating? And as far as I know, it's the only reference I can find to Genesis 15 that helps me to understand what the Lord did in Genesis 15. And remember, it was the Lord. Abraham never passed between those two parts. He was in a deep sleep. He was a non-participant. He was a recipient. But he was a non-participant. And God himself passed between the two parts. Why? You know, on the basis of that picture in Jeremiah, it seems to me that when people made this kind of covenant promise and commitment, they were saying, if I am unfaithful in this covenant, may the curse come upon me and I will be like these divided animals. If I prove unfaithful, then let this thing come upon me. Such was the importance of the commitment of covenant. God did it. Oh, how could that be? That makes no sense. Because it's impossible for God to be unfaithful in his covenant. So why would he pass between the pieces? It was because, as impossible as it was for God to be unfaithful, it was not impossible for man to be unfaithful on his part. And God said, I'll take the curse. I'll take it. You say, can God be divided? Yes, he can. In some mysterious way in here is Galatians 3, and you have to change the picture of the old covenant of, of uh, Genesis 15 to Calvary of course and Paul saying in Galatians 3 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us you see that God took the curse because it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree and now get this that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith you see, in the things of God, we were unfaithful. And that unfaithfulness shows far too often in my life, and probably you'd say the same. We come and show our faultiness, our old sin nature, and we break and we fracture in the things that God never breaks or fractures in. He is perfectly faithful, and we are not quite. That's, that's serious. It's a very serious condition. But instead of God bringing the curse upon the unfaithful, he says, I'll take the curse for you. And that is what happened at Calvary. 
1864, winter time. And there's an old man. He's not that old, but he's an older man. John Duncan, he's a professor. And he's lecturing to his students at the university that he lectured at. He was a brilliant man, John Duncan. Uh, he'd been born in 1814 to an Aberdeen shoesmith. And he went to a theological college, though he was a, an atheist. He was a professed atheist. He said, I don't believe in God. In fact, I believe there is no God. That's the position of the atheist. Gone beyond agnosticism and the doubts. Yeah, there is no God. And John Duncan went to a theological college to prove it to himself and to everybody else. And like other people who have gone down that track, he ended up <laughs> discovering he was wrong. And he got saved. Gloriously converted. Uh, he, he was a brilliant man. He had all sorts of language. He could speak um, Coptic, uh, Syriac, uh, all sorts of the old languages. He had a passion for the Jewish people, for Israel, so much so that they nicknamed him Rabbi, Rabbi Duncan. If you've heard of Rabbi Duncan, or this is the man we're talking about from the um, 19th century, great theologian and teacher. And anyway, his, the winter of 1864, and he's talking to his students and he's reading with them the uh, prophet Isaiah and something in his mind just takes him to the 53rd chapter and he's just arrested by it and he seems to forget where he is it's the lecture theater and his students are all waiting on him and he gets up this John Duncan gets up from his desk and he bows his head and he's pacing up and down on the thing before them and, and he's saying how could it be how could it be and, and then he seems to get this flash of inspiration uh, and he looks at them and, and he says how could it be what he said what is it as if someone had given him some sort of answer and it wasn't big enough and they're all completely stunned into silence he says I'll tell you what it is it was damnation. It was damnation. And it was willingly taken by him. Damnation. Willingly taken by him. And he went back to his chair and he slumps in his chair and his hands are hanging down but his head's up right now. The tears are running down his cheeks. It's damnation willingly taken by the Savior. That's what Genesis 15 is about. And all the mystery of it. And please get below the story of a promise being repeated to Abraham and Abraham going away a comforted, assured man. In all the mystery of Genesis 15, Calvary's there. God's making a covenant. And God is entering into the effect and the consequences of that covenant being broken. The covenant couldn't be broken, but it, it, there were people in it that could prove, prove faithless. And he's taken the consequences of that out of your way and out of mine. This is a verse from a hymn. Whatever curse was ours, he bore. The wormwood and the gall. There in that lone mysterious hour, our cup, he drained it all. That was, that's what Christ did for us. Let's have our prayer. Oh God, we thank you that you're a God who makes covenants. You never asked us what we thought of it. 
He didn't ask us to participate in it, and we're grateful for it. But the covenant you made is a promise that we, are, we can receive the forgiveness of sins and have eternal life. God, we thank you together this morning that you've not only made the covenant, but you've taken away the curse of those who would prove faithless in the face of it. Here's a law that said, Cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. And the law came to Jesus Christ and measured the 33 years that he lived as a man on earth and found that he was faultless. The law had no claim on him. And there was nothing that it could accuse him of. The accusations in Pilate's judgment place were false. He himself said, I find no fault in him. God, we look at the faultlessness of Christ and we wonder how he could be cursed. But they hung him on a tree so that the law at last could have a claim upon the spotless man. We thank you for him. He was taking our place and you put upon him the iniquity of us all. He had none of his own, but you put ours on him that he might bear them away and we might be saved. God, we look forward to an eternity of bliss and we thank you that it's absolutely assured by two immutable things in which it is impossible for you to lie that we might have a strong comfort, consolation, who have fled for refuge, to lay hold of the hope set before us. And we pray, God, that that will be true of everybody here in this room. We're thinking of little Braylon, the whole life ahead of her, and of the blessing that we invoked earlier. And God, we bring her to you again that in the years when she comes to knowledge and understanding that these things will be as real to her as they are to us this morning also. So we commit one another to you, each one in our need, but this morning in the great comfort that we receive in the gospel. And we ask God that you'll take us on through the day and through the week until the Lord Jesus comes rejoicing in the security that we have in him. We praise you for him and make our prayer in his name. Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.